Alright, and welcome back into Baseline. Chris Bass back at you. Looking forward to uh, having this guest on for a while. I met her a few weeks ago and just a, a marvelous person. She's the author of the book, Daughter of a Porn King, A True Story. This is Dr. Cynthia Glickman. Dr. Glickman and Cynthia, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Now, I know people like to be proud of their accomplishments. Now, should I address you as Dr. Cynthia or Dr. Glickman or just Cynthia? How would you want me to talk, uh, call to you? Oh, Cynthia is fine. People call me the Joy Doctor, but, uh, <laughs> 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 but Cynthia is fine. Okay, not a problem. Now, Cynthia, this is going to start just uh, from your background. Where were you born and raised at? Uh, well, I was born in, born in Valencia, well, Granada Hills, California, but my um, family, you know, we grew up in the L.A. area, mm-hmm. San Fernando Valley, where um, the porn industry was uh, thriving at the time. Your father's position in porn when it came to, what, what exactly was he uh, doing for, for porn, for the porn industry? Well, when my dad got into the business, it was, um, we were facing an economy like we are today. Mm-hmm. And the, the only difference was that we, we had interest rates that were double digits. And my father was a supervisor in the construction industry. And they saw, oh my goodness, you know, the, the, all these jobs are going to be going away. And my father was facing being laid off. And my parents were looking at, at potentially being on welfare. And so my father was approached by the, our neighbor who offered him this position. And so when he first started in the business, he was literally just walking the streets, going to adult bookshops, selling these eight millimeter reels of pornography. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, he, so that was the beginning, is um, he, he got into the business because basically they were looking to make a buck and support their family. And, um, and so he started distributing these, these reels, and he started collecting money all over the United States, picking up money for these. Uh, for these. And then eventually he, he grew in the business and started producing, and, the, you know, of course they were distributing um, VCR, or what are those called? The, the cassettes. Get a VHS. The VHS, yeah. So. Now... Looking back in hindsight, I know when someone is trying to find a way to make ends meet, they don't really think about the repercussions of what it might do to themselves or their families because the, the bottom line is at stake. Um, you ever had conversations with your father about, you know, the backlash of having a father work in the porn industry? You know, what's so amazing is um, my dad, when we interviewed him, at one point, he said, you know, look, I, I'm a Jew. It was all about the money. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he's allowed to say that because he's Jewish, right? Yes, but, right. Uh, um, but one of the things that was really, really awesome in my in my background, even though I was exposed to what might have been the really shady stuff, is that it was really ingrained into me as a child from my grandmother that education was crucial and that that was one of the things that during the Holocaust that the Jewish people faced is all of their stuff could be taken away mm-hmm. at any moment, but the one thing that could never be taken away was their education. Right. And so that was, 
something that greatly influenced me and, and is why today, you know, speaking of me having a doctorate degree, I think she made that real impact, My and this is on my father's side. Um, but I have a really interesting story about my mom, too. Sure. Go ahead. Um, if you, yeah, okay. So my, my mom, when I was talking to her about this just a couple years ago, I was asking her questions about this. And, and during that time, when they made the decision to go into the business, um, my mom actually told my father, you know, before we just do this, we should probably think about this for a couple of days. Let's sit on it for three days before we decide. Because she actually did have some foresight thinking, you know, maybe this is, even though we're going to make money, um, and even though this is going to be great, I don't want to be on welfare with my children. Yeah. Um, at the same time, is this really the best thing for our family? And so as she got into the business, with the money started rolling in, she's driving new Mercedes every couple months, she's got a new fur coat, mm -hmm. and the next thing you know, we're getting bigger and better houses. And, and it got to the point where she literally just got so sucked into the business, and just a couple years ago, she was, she was just in tears and, and was asking for forgiveness because she realized, wow, what did I do? Could I have harmed my children? So um, that was just a really powerful moment for us because I never, I never held a grudge. I never held anything over my parents for their decision. Mm -hmm. um, it was a catalyst for me to become who I am. So, I, you know, I, I saw these women being objectified and wanted to be anything but these women. Right. So to me, I look at, it's kind of, it's kind of the saying, is a glass half full or is a glass half empty? Well, I guess it depends on which way you're looking at it. You know, are you filling it, or are you are you are you are you drinking out of it? And, right. Um, anyway, so I, I I see these as golden opportunities in our lives. That whenever we have challenges or something that seems that it would be um, maybe a negative, we can always transform it into a positive. Uh, you mentioned children, so you have a brother, right? Yeah, I have two brothers. Yeah, two brothers. When you guys were going to school, did your uh, you know classmates get wind of the fact that your dad worked in the porn industry? And if so, did they tease you, of course, or did they make your life miserable? Yeah, you know it's it's funny because Chris, I mean, if you were the son of a porn king, how would you how would you feel? <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I'm not stating the obvious. No, I just you know just the fact that you have enough trouble being a kid. You know, trying yeah. to grow up and yeah. go through adolescence and try to fit in. And now you got this to compound matters. I mean, geez, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that had to hurt like hell. Well, it, you know, I think especially for, for a girl, because for my brothers, they were actually bragging about it. They thought, oh, look at this, isn't that great? And right. They'd have video boxes, and all the boys thought they were the, you know, the bee's knees. And so my brothers were totally popular because they, they could supply uh, the goods. Gotcha. And, for a little girl, you know, get, I, I was always hiding in it. It gave me a complex, and so here I was. I, I, I was always teased for being fat, and then on top of it, the kids were saying, "Oh, and your dad's the porn king of L.A." Mm. Mm -hmm. How long did you go through that type of phase? I mean, it seems like it's agonizing. How long did I go through that? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I, I think I. If I recall, when I finally started to transform things in my life was probably 
when I, not until I really left home. I mean, I think in high school, I, it was like I just kind of moved on. I just coped with it. Right. Um, like many of us do, when, especially in childhood, when things happen that may seem really traumatic to us, we just move on. Right. And I know a lot of people out there, and a lot of my clients actually, I mean, that's why they come to me, because they've had traumas in their past. And they've just moved on and think, oh, well, everything's going to be fine. And the problem with that is that it's like, it's a bunch of baggage that you don't really even realize you have. And um, as I went out, as I went away to college and then I, I spent a year abroad in the Czech Republic. And I think that year I really started to, I started journaling. I started really reflecting on my life and those things, it gave me an opportunity to start healing those things in my life. So, um, yeah, and that's, that's probably what's led me to the work that I do today, helping people to transform that and give them uh, some guideposts to do that more quickly. That's than amazing. having to wait their whole life. That sounds good. Yeah. Over it. No, absolutely. You're listening to Baseline right here on Jam Chicago. Chris Base with you. My guest is Dr. Cynthia Glickman, the author of the book Daughter of a Porn King, a true story. Um, you know, you and I talked before. Uh, take us back to when you were at a certain convention with your brother and you two were a small age in that time. Take us back to that time, please. <laughs> well, imagine a seven year old girl walking into a porn convention without adult supervision. And there's Tarzan and Jane swinging from the ceilings and toys and all sorts of um, eye-catching things going on everywhere. Bootylicious mamas with their their uh, boobies hanging out and... Uh, here I am, the seven-year-old girl, and all I have to hang on to is my eight-year-old brother. Oh, good night. Did this happen on more than one occasion or just at one occasion? Uh, we, we had actually gone to several porn conventions. Um, I don't, I think the next one wasn't until I was like 13. Right. And, um, you know, these went on not just in Las Vegas. Actually, we went to Las Vegas quite a bit, but uh -huh. um, they were even held... One of them that we went to was in Washington, D.C., and one was in New York. And um, so it was business, and it became, uh, <laughs> well, these were our family vacations. All right, okay, okay, but well, here's the thing, though. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to play judgment. I'm just trying to ask a question. Now, me being a parent myself, if I had to go into an industry like porn and then make money, I get that. But I guess I would, I would not bring my children to these porn conventions. Looking back on it, uh, if, from your perspective, I mean, it became, I guess it was the norm for you guys at the time, right? Well, um, as a child, I don't think you know any different. Right, right? okay, and, gotcha. Um, and looking back at my parents' choices, I mean, honestly, as an adult, I would, I would not choose that. I don't have children, but if I were to have children, that would not be place I'd want to bring them either. Right. At, at the same time, I, I look at that and I realize, I, I don't judge that my parents did that because uh -huh. I think they were really desensitized to it. And if you take a look at society today, there's so many things that in the 50s would have never happened, right? I mean, women weren't even supposed to wear pants. Correct. And, and, um, and so 
society's just changed so dramatically, and there's things that that they were seeing that just seemed normal and not such a big deal. Mm-hmm. So I, I think at the time they were a little bit clouded, and like I was saying, my mother got so really sucked into to this prison of, well, geez, we got to do this in order to make money, and then once they started making money, they it, it, it became an addiction almost. And so I think that happens to all of us as human beings that we we have that possibility, right? That we right. get sucked into things like that. You, you, get, you get caught up in the moment. Right. Um, how long was your dad in the porn business? Well, my dad got in the business when I was one, which would have been uh, 73. I was mm. born in 72. Um, and he got out of the business about 10 years ago. So. Oh, okay. Want to do the math on that real quick? Oh. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say let's just say a lot of years because I'm bad with math. Adult career, so man. Um, yeah. So let's fast forward to by the time you got to college. Now, when you were in college, I know you went to the University of uh, Nevada and some others. When you were when you were there, and, and take us back to that time as well, because coming from that environment with your dad, and once again, you know, you're not trying to. Uh, pass judgment on your parents, but you have to make your own way. Uh, give us an example of when you say, you know what, this is going to be my way and not the way of my parents. Because I know there's a chapter in your book where you mentioned, I think it's chapter 25, uh, when you mentioned, oh my God, I become my mother, for example. Uh, <laughs> which I want to get to as well. Uh, like, oh my God moments. <laughs> right, right. So uh, take us to the definitive moment when you say, you know what, this will be my path, whatever you're going to choose in life. I went to UC Santa Cruz for my undergraduate, uh-huh. and um, so I left home at, I had just turned 17. I graduated a year early from high school because I, well, it was a couple of reasons. I was so determined to to succeed in life. I was so determined to prove to the world and to myself that women were more than just objects, Yes. and I was so determined to get out of that house that... Um, I did everything that I could in order to graduate that year early. So I literally had had just had my 17th birthday, packed up my car, and took off to Santa Cruz. And one of the that I think that was really my defining moment because my father wanted something different for me, and he he actually assumed that I would, if I was going to go to college at all, that I would stay at home. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, he had set me up on this date. I don't remember if I told you about that when I was 16. Yes, you told me, yeah, but tell our audience as well. Yeah, um, so when I was 16, my father put me, set me up on a date with a 36-year-old man who was a multimillionaire and, you know, I don't know, had, had whatever going on in his life and wanted a wife. And so my father figured this was a great opportunity and thought that he was taking good care of his daughter by putting her in position to be taken care of for the rest of her life. Um, And so that, for me, was also impetuous to want to go on and get my degrees because I knew when this guy's slamming me up against his car and thrusting his tongue down my throat and my skin began to crawl, you know, oh, my God, you know, I don't, this is not, this is not me, this is not my life, this mm-hmm. is not what I want, and um, 
that was a really big defining moment. And within a year later, like I said, I packed everything in my car and took off. And my father had basically disowned me and said, well, if that's your choice, then you, good luck. Good luck mm. with that. You're going to have to do it on your own. So I think that that was the greatest gift that my father could have ever given me because it gave me the strength to know that I can always do whatever whatever I set my mind to. Right. Now, so, we go back to your dad again. And once again, let me reiterate, because nobody's sure. perfect. Nobody's trying to uh, throw stones at glass houses. The You have a situation where you're 16 years old, and your dad is setting you up on a date with a 36. The guy's 20 years older than you. And you had to have felt some sort of pressure or some sort of resentment to your dad at the time, or, or did you not? Because I think you're, once again, looking from your dad's perspective, trying to be kind here, um, that he wanted to make sure that you were well taken care of, you were set financially, and that, you know, that's what, they, that's what certain parents do. They marry their daughters off or sons off to well-to-do families if they can. Right. Um, well, and it's even some cultures, that's just the way that it is. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. right. So we're talking about something that's a time-honored tradition to a degree where certain families do that, certain parents and matriarchs and patriarchs do that for their children. When you were going through this, you mentioned earlier about here you got this 36-year-old guy slamming his tongue down your throat. Did you ever feel any resentment towards your dad for setting this whole thing up? Um, I think I felt it was more just so driven to... to Show, you know, it's almost like I wanted to show him. It was kind of out of ego. Okay. Um, like, I just wanted to show him that, look, I can do this. I don't need that help. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of help I need. And so I, I, I don't know if resentment's quite the right word. And, uh -huh. um, and, and, you know, looking back at it now, certainly it's easier to say, I don't, I don't judge it. I recognize that he was doing this out of love. I, at the time... I think I was just like, okay, fine, let me show you. I can go do this. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. What's the word for that? What's the... I think it, you know, it's negative inspiration. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think you're right. You were able to take that situation, which I think most people would have been, you know, Dad, how could you? You turned into the 180 and said, you know what? I don't need this. I can be independent and get my own thing. Right. So, and, yeah. you know, it's really actually so important right there that piece is such a, a golden nugget of yes. one of the things that I that I teach my clients in my in my programs is is just that like you know you can resent these things but that only it only imprisons you mm -hmm. right like yeah. okay my boyfriend just broke up with me and what an awful man right like that's right. certainly one way to look at it but but ultimately that doesn't affect him that affects you and so if we shift that and go, okay, that's fine, I'm going to go and be happy, even if it's out of, well, I'm going to show him and go be happy, well, at least you're doing something better for your life than sitting around being miserable or upset at somebody else that is not even being affected by your misery. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me. How, now, um, when did you get your graduate? How old were you when you got to graduate, when you graduated from that situation there? Um, well, uh, your doc your doctor um, like I think days before my seventeenth birthday, and then I graduated must have graduated from college at, by twenty uh -huh. 
19 or 20, and then I, I left for Prague. Well, I left for Europe. I sold my car and went to Europe for a year and taught English in Prague, and then came back and, and started my master's degree in mathematics at UNLV, <laughs> and then continued my doctorate degree in, um, since I was a professor at the time, I wanted to understand how people learned. Mm-hmm. And um, so I studied human cognition, and then I had minors in math and technology. Uh, growing up in an industry, well, in not industry, but growing up with your father's in an industry where it's just nothing but sex, um, did that affect your personal sex life? Growing up around that? Yeah, yeah, growing up yeah, around that, yeah. Um, absolutely. You know, it, it, it's, um, these things all impact us and, and it's our, you know, our own way of thinking about it, but I, I remember I was dating a boy when I was in high school and he was pressuring me, and I, I think I talk about that in uh, <laughs> in one of the chapters about how this guy wanted to get me into bed and in the bed of his truck, mm-hmm. and um, you know he kept pressuring me and pressuring me, and I I, I finally gave in because I thought, well, this is what I need to do in order to be loved, just like when I was seven years old, looking around at this porn convention and seeing men lining up for hours to get a signed autograph from a woman I mean I to me it made this imprint on my mind like well this is what you have to do this is what you have to do to be loved Mm. and so sure enough I was totally detached from the situation ended up having this moment with him and I believe like the very next day he tells me oh by the way I've met somebody else um I, I just, uh, you know, I don't think that we're right for each other because I need a girl who's not uh, not going to do that. Right. And um, so that was quite a confusing lesson that, uh, that I was now dirty. <laughs> Man, um, that's... So, geez. you know, that was, that was quite a, um, a journey for me to have to look at that and go, okay, well... You know, what is right for me and right. make some decisions that are right for me, not based on what I think I have to do to make somebody else love me or to be happy. How long did it take for you to go through a healing process before you start to heal others? Um, so how long did it take me to go through a healing process before I didn't hear the last? Yeah, before you started to heal others yourself. Um, well, I... When I started teaching, actually, as a professor at mm. the college, it was really fascinating because I was a math professor. Students would come into my classes, and they would literally, you know, be like, what the F am I doing here? Because well, I don't need to take math. Who cares? My major's whatever. My major's psychology, or my major's whatever it was. And... So I would meet at the beginning of a semester, all this resistance. And what I discovered over the course of the semesters, and I I taught um, for, I was in education for nine years. So um, what I discovered was that these students had this resentment and this negativity and this belief that they were not good at math based on something that had happened to them when they were children. And it was 
unequivocal. Every single time, they would all have a story that either their mother said they were no good at it, or they were a woman and they were told that girls are no good at math, or they were told by a teacher that they were stupid, or, you know, there were, in some cases, it was, you know, really dramatic. And when we were able to go back and heal that, so it's kind of strange to think of a math teacher healing their, <laughs> right. helping their students heal. But um, what I discovered when we were able to transform that belief and help them to uncover that, you know what, that's not true. I don't have to believe that. I can be good at this. By the end of the semester, my students would be coming back saying, oh, my God, this is my favorite class. I love math. And so... so it had started back then, and that's um, like 16, 17, I don't know how many years ago. Geez, I'm 39, yeah. and I started teaching at 21. Oh, that's great. So um, quite a while ago. Man, that's um, fantastic. And that was really the beginning of it when I realized how important it was, our, how, how hugely our beliefs impact our lives. So... Um, yeah, so that's pretty amazing stuff, and it just developed from there where I started to realize, well, it's not just in mathematics, this applies to everything in life. You're listening to Baseline right here on Jam Chicago. Chris Bass, your host. My guest is Dr. Cynthia Glickman, author of the book Daughter of a Porn King, A True Story. When did you, um, so when did you get to the point where you wanted to help people in a different way outside of mathematics? When did you make that, that decision? Um, I had, after I taught, I was, I was actually, um, offered a position as a dean. Oh, okay. Which I thought, um, why would I want to do that? I don't want to be an administrator. I love teaching. I loved my students. I mean, I have such passion for the people that I work with. I love, I love helping people, and I thought this would detach me. So, um... I thought at the same time, I was only 28 years old when I was offered a dean's position, which is nearly unheard of. I mean, usually you'll find at colleges or higher education institutions, like, six-year-old men, at least at the time. And I thought, you know, this is something good potentially for my resume. Um, So I took that on and grew the program and, and did... Um, wonderful things, learned so much, and then I ended up with a um, opening up a real estate company. I had started investing, and I started to discover, wow, I can also teach these agents how to succeed in real estate. And so it just continued to expand from there, where I realized, but what is my, what's my true calling in life? Right. And I really had to feel into my heart and my soul and, um, you know, whether you're religious or not, I mean, I connect with God, universe, and um, have been guided. And I know that, that, you know, I can teach math, I can teach real estate, I can teach all these other things. But the truth is my mission on this planet is to help spread joy. And um, so I just discovered that, you know, instead of clouding it in these other things, why don't I just do what I came here to do? And that's how I started teaching. I started teaching workshops. I started working with people one-on-one. Um, I have a client. I don't know if I told you about my client that had lupus. Um, he actually had come to me 
as a friend, this is before I even had considered being a coach, um, I was still in real estate at the time, and I was helping him with his business. And in 90 days, he tripled his income. Whoa. And this was while the economy was on a downturn. Right. Okay, so we were already going into the, the downward spin here. And he shows up at my doorstep. This one day, I'm literally standing in my kitchen and had this conversation with God. And I said, okay, God, universe, angels, I need a sign and I need it today. Because if I meant to be an author and I meant to go bring this message to the world... I need an answer today. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing real estate and I'll just do my thing. Right. But I don't have passion for this anymore. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, he shows up at my doorstep and he's in tears. And he's like, Cynthia, you don't understand. The doctors had told me that I wasn't going to be here to see my son, Stevie, graduate from high school. I was in stage two lupus which means when you get to stage three, you're terminal. So the doctors literally said I was going to die. Right. And um, they tested my blood not once, not twice, not, but three times. And he said it's not, it's not in remission. It's gone. It's completely gone. And the only thing that I can attribute to that, the doctors asked, what am I doing different? The only thing I can attribute to that is the work I've been doing with you. Mm. And I knew in that moment that was my sign. And realized that really the work that I did with him was exactly the same work that I had been doing with those students all the way back, you know, almost 20 years ago now, regarding his beliefs about his health and, and his, his health and his wealth. And you can see the dramatic results that he got. So that from that point forward, I was on on the path, and this is it. This is what I'm here to do, and I just I want to help people. And I know by reading my books um, that people will be transformed. And I just hope to touch whoever whoever is guided to come to me that wants to transform their lives. That they'll come to me, and I just have total faith in that. That I'm that I'll touch the people I'm meant to touch. Speaking of touching, there's one thing you always elaborate on since I've met you, and I was in the book as well, about the J-spot. Now, what exactly is the J-spot <laughs> for people out there who just don't know what it is yet? Well, the J-spot is clean, first of all. Um, the J-spot is, yeah, I start to talk about it in this book, and as a matter of fact, the next book out, I've already written it, um, is just in the editing process. Is also, it's actually called Finding the J-spot. Oh, great. Yeah, um, and this is it, it, those are the seminars that I do. I do a seven-week course um, that you can check out. It's um, available on my website. And by the way, I've got, um, is it okay if I give an offer to the listeners? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, um, on my website, CynthiaGlickman.com, or if it's easier, your J-Spot, Y-O-U-R-J-Spot, um, is 101 Joy Tips, and it's actually... Um, I actually think there's a little bit more than one. You'll get a few bonus ones. Um, but if you sign up there, you'll get those, and you'll also get information on how to be in your J-spot all the time. And J is for joy. And ultimately, it's like, you know, you think of a, of a storm, the eye of the storm. The J-spot is being so centered and in that place of peace, no matter what's going on in the world. The economy's bad. 
you know, family, gut issues, whatever it is, no matter what's going on in your life, it's being in that peaceful, joyful state, no matter what. That and that's what I help people to do. And that's, that's finding their J spot. That sounds enlightening. I really like that. Uh, here's the question I have for you to at the end of this conversation that uh, you and I both have. Once again, thank you for being on the program. If thank you. Oh, this has been great. You're awesome. I love you. Oh, I lo- look, you know, look, any, anybody that anybody that loves me, I'll make love them back because I'm not a person, I'm a hard person to love, you know, but I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've said it to you um, hundreds of times by now, but I think that you've just got the most amazing radio voice and you're just amazing, so. Oh, I, that really means a lot to me. Spread the word because if anybody wants to hook me up or try to get me somewhere or uh, I could do appearances and just please, you know, I don't know, you know a lot of people, so I, I appreciate that. It's a shame, shameless, Absolutely. shameless plug, I know. So, <laughs> <laughs> If you can invite four people to dinner, alive or not, who would they be and why? Okay. <laughs> I would have to say Napoleon Hill. Um, do I say why? Yes. Did you ask why? Yes. Um, Napoleon Hill, because so many great works have actually come out of his works. Um, one of the most famous is The Think and Grow Rich. And um, he was completely ahead of his time. And, you know, the, the amazing thing about that is that, um, you know, he is one of the, the masters of all this, the um, things that I talk about, about the beliefs that we, that we create, our reality through our beliefs and all of that. Um, so he was just amazing. And the truth is, all of this information that these guys have passed down have really started way back, I think, really beginning from the Bible. Um, um, so speaking of, I would say Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what? Everybody um, always puts Jesus at the table. Everybody that I've, I've really? interviewed so far, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because I look to um, Jesus is such a great example of the type of person that I am becoming mm-hmm. and want to be. And when I work with clients, um, that's one of the things is if we can get a, a rise to the point that we emulate him, then we've really, I believe, done well in our, our schoolhouse here on planet Earth. Um, so he's an amazing example of, of superhumanness that I think is within all of us. Um, the next one would be probably, this is probably cliche, but Oprah Winfrey. Um, because I am inspired and amazed by her as a successful, empowered woman in the world. Um, She came up in a time that, you know, really a lot of things were changing for women. And so she's not only, we all know how famously successful she is, but she really pioneered um, herself and her life. And whether she's woman or not, um, you know, she came through a lot of challenges herself in life and has also been a, a shining example of greatness. Um, and the other one that puts, pops into my mind immediately is Jack Canfield. Are you familiar with Jack Canfield? No, who is that? He's the, he's that, well, I don't know if you'd call him the author, but he's, he, he is the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. But oh, okay. Chicken Soup for the Soul has multiple authors. Right. Um... But he's the, 
I guess, one of the masterminds, him and Mark Victor Hansen. And as a matter of fact, I will be having lunch with Jack, Jack Canfield next week. Oh, so, great. yippee. Um, so I'm really inspired by him as well because he's really impacting the world in a positive way. And um, not only is he working with individuals, but he's actually teaching others how to enhance people's lives and really help them to see that that um, we create our own realities and, and taking responsibility for our lives. So, yeah, that would be awesome. I would love to have dinner and lunch with those all. Wow, that'd be amazing. That'd be a serious power lunch right there. Oh, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. Dr. Cynthia Glickman. Author of the book, uh, Daughter of a Porn King, A True Story. Uh, where can people find your book at, Cynthia? It's available everywhere. Um, they can go to daughteroforporn.king.com. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's available at Barnes & Noble. Um, if it's not in their local bookstore, they just ask for it, and it can be ordered in within uh, two days, I believe. So, But probably the easiest, it's, a, it's even downloadable on Kindle and Nook. So, yeah, you're going to love it. You loved it, right, Chris? Yes, I did. I was just saying it was a great read. Uh, in fact, I pass it on to my wife now. She's going to read it herself. And awesome. it was it was very inspirational. And for someone who's come from the background of what you talked about, you know, having that pressure at one point with your dad and, and to find your own voice and to find your own thing, it's not it's not easy sometimes. But you did a, a great job. And, and once again, on the side note, you had the most magnificent laugh. I ever heard from anybody. I mean, it is just so, it is very infectious. And, and keep that laughing going. I think it really helps to heal people as well, uh, what you're doing yeah. to help people. I think it's all part of a, you know, your great package. Aw, yay, warm fuzzies. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Cindy. I'll be in touch, okay? All right. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. You too. Cynthia Glickman, who's the author of the book, uh, Daughter of a Porn King. Yeah, I, I would definitely try to get that book. And as like she said, you know, check it out online. It's everywhere. It was a fantastic read. And I uh, once again thank her. also want to thank the great, uh, greater Harold Lee Rush for doing what he does best when he brings us the 18-minute gap in the uh, first half hour. Uh, thank you for listening. Up next is World Music. And uh, then later on tonight at 6 p.m. Central, you will have the Jam Basement party also uh, like i said before i need your vote for a baseline to have uh to hopefully win the best show of the year as by radio facts go to this website right here champchicago.com and click on uh the link for that or go to or you also go to facebook.com and type in chris base and then check it out for yourself there's right there on the page you scroll down you can vote up to three times like i said it's the chicago way you vote early and vote often and sometimes you have some dead people that can vote too so have them have them uh, light on to it and spread the word like i said before it's, it's amazing the um the votes i have so far and, and thank you for taking time out to to vote and uh, hopefully make this thing work so once again enjoy yourself have a great weekend we'll do it again next saturday at 10 a.m central right here on jam chicago enjoy and uh as uh dr glickman says you know and uh, find out what your j spot is and that means joy so joy to all of you. Take care. Talk to you soon. One.